Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act altered federal tax laws in ways which will materially impact business operations and transactions. While the IRS begins implementing the new legislation, join Brownstein's tax group for an update of its key components impacting business entities, including Inside the Beltway insights on the following. Headline tax rates and highlights of the act, new deductions for pass-through entities, interest deductibility issues, carried interest provisions, as well as M&A tax and choice of entity considerations. Thank you for coming this evening uh, to our presentation on the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. My name is Mike King. I'm the chairman of the corporate department here at Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek. Uh, and really, I'm the least important person up here by far because everyone on my right, uh, physically, not necessarily politically, had a role one way or another in the momentous tax legislation that we're about to talk about, um, which is incredibly onerous and impenetrable. And uh, our quartet here will do their level best to break it down into bite sized, actionable pieces. So, We first have the head of our tax department, Greg Berger. Greg spent uh, the better part of November and December hitting uh, all billable hours quotas for the year in making America great again. Uh, He was involved with our policy folks in D.C. uh, in keeping an eye on all this legislation. And we'll give you that inside the beltway perspective. Uh, We also have Andrew Elliott. Tenley Oldak and Eric Jensen, all partners in our tax group here at Brownstein. Without further ado, Mr. Berger. Uh, One thing I just want to point out what this tax reform history chart shows you is that serious tax reform discussions started in 2011, uh, 2014, 2015. These were very serious drafts, a lot of thought put out to it. Then there was a delay. But if you look at the right side, uh, the first time we had language of the Tax Act was November 2nd. Uh, Six weeks later, it past. So it moved fast and furious, and uh, we, Treasury, and the IRS are all still trying to unpack what it says and whether it says what it intended to say and uh, what can be done about that to the extent it does not. The summary of the tax rates, I think everybody has heard there were uh, reductions. Uh, there were a lot of people say, well, the individual rates went from 39.6 to 37. For high-income taxpayers, because the Pease Amendment, which took away your individual, you know, kind of took a haircut out of your individual deductions, the scores usually value that at about 1.3%. So you might say that the highest rate went from 41 to 37 um, the corporate rate, obviously, a flat 21 percent. We'll talk later about what impact that has on decision-making. Uh, I think the short answer is not as much as everybody thought it would. Uh, nothing changed the long-term capital rate. Uh, importantly, corporate AMT was uh, repealed. Uh, I put on here some of the foreign tax provisions. We're not really going to talk about them, but uh, they are important. We'll talk about them a little later in terms of how they may affect transactions. But there are some new taxes that will impact companies if they have global supply chains, if they have affiliate transactions, if they have intangibles offshore. Uh, There are some provisions that did not exist before. Um, So the provisions we're going to talk about, again, uh, the summary of the provisions, the corporate tax rate was lowered. The dividend received deduction was revised to reflect that. We're going to talk about the carried interest, which I think a lot of people thought was not going to be important, but it is. 
uh, interest expense and limitations on that also will affect transactions. Uh, there's some cost recovery deductions that uh, should provide some stimulus. Again, no corporate AMT. NOLs have been restricted. Importantly, no more carryback, and they're restricted, and that's probably going to affect the valuation of some transactions. Uh, the one person I think that summarized best where we are, uh, but not really talking about tax reform, was talking about weapons of mass destruction, was Don Rumsfeld in 1992, 2002, sorry. Uh, and I th- when I said I, th- I think he really described tax reform where we are now. There's known knowns, and those are the things we know that we know, and we'll talk about those. Uh, there are known unknowns things that we know we don't know, and we'll touch on those. And then there's unknown unknowns. Uh, that was true of weapons of mass destruction, and it's true of tax reform today. We won't address any of the unknown unknowns. And with that, I'll turn it over to Andrew. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Andrew Elliott. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm the tax partner to these other four folks up here. And I've been at Brownstein uh, since I joined the firm in, uh, in 2005. Uh, and a little correction, Mike. Uh, I think you you lumped me in with with Greg as as having participated in this legislative process. Uh, and I, I that You're may trying have, to preserve that's, the that's an unfair <laughs> that's an unfair accusation. Uh, what I have done is uh, I've spent the last uh, couple of months uh, trying to help clients, uh, you know, figure out what all this legislation says. And uh, it's helpful to have have Greg who participated in uh, in a big part of it uh, down the hall from me. Um, so uh, I'm going to I'm going to speak on on just one topic, uh, and that's the the so-called uh, pass-through deduction. Uh, that's uh, you also hear it referenced as Code Section 199 Cap A. Uh, and what that is uh, is it's a a 20 percent deduction uh, for for business income, in particular uh, so-called qualified business income. Uh, and just a little bit of, of context for, for the deduction, uh, if, you, if you think of uh, kind of as a starting point for tax reform, well, let's lower uh, corporate income tax rates uh, from, the, from the maximum uh, 35% uh, where it was before uh, to, as shown on your sheet uh, in front of you there, the, the flat 21% rate where we are now. Uh, well, that's a pretty significant reduction uh, is there a mechanism that we can use to, to level the playing field uh, for all the business entities that, that aren't corporations? Uh, and, and this is, uh, for better or worse, this is what Congress came up with. Uh, it's this 20 percent deduction. Uh, and what it does, if it, let's say that you're, uh, you're in that top tier, that 37 percent rate, uh, and you qualify, all of your business income qualifies for the deduction, uh, then what it effectively does is is bring that business income down to a 29.6 percent rate. Uh, so it levels the playing field, narrows that gap a little bit between uh, between uh, pass through income rates and corporate rates. Doesn't get anywhere near the the 21 percent rate. Uh, but uh, as I note in the slide here, uh, it, after you take into account corporate dividends, uh, which uh, on on a combined basis would be at at 39.8 percent. Uh, then, uh, then you're you're better off, uh, with or without, frankly, the the pass through deduction. Uh, so, who's eligible for it? Uh, 199 Cap A says uh, says not corporations. 
so that means individuals, uh, trusts, and states will qualify for it. Um, it can run through partnerships, can run through S corps, uh, tiered partnership arrangements. It'll it'll pass through. Uh, when does it start? Uh, for taxable years beginning on January 1 of 2018. Uh, what I didn't note on there is when does it end? Uh, it sunsets in, in 2025, uh, which is when I believe the 21% the corporate rate uh, also uh, is scheduled to, to sunset. So through 2025. Um, we'll skip this slide, uh, but 20% of what? Uh, the answer to that is 20% is of an individual taxpayer's uh, combined qualified business income. Uh, and what is qualified business income? Uh, well, there's two component, components to that. One is you got to have a qualified trader business, which I'll get to in a moment. Uh, and then uh, it goes into to telling you what it's not. Uh, and some of the important things that, it, that it's not uh, are capital gains, dividends, interest, all you know, passive types of income, uh, and also guaranteed payments uh, from partnerships uh, and a few other items. Uh, now, what is a qualified trader business? Uh, well, that's not defined either. Uh, and I, I guess that's okay. Uh, that term is used uh, in a lot of other places in the tax code. As far as I know, it's, it's never been defined there. Uh, but I, I guess somewhat helpfully, uh, it goes on to tell you what is not a qualified trader business. Uh, and in particular, uh, that's the so-called specified service trader business. Uh, and it enumerates a lot of uh, column uh, professions uh, that are excluded uh, from QBI. Uh, some of the notable ones, uh, uh, performance of services in health, law, accounting, consulting, financial services, brokerage services, uh, investing in investment management. Uh, interestingly, uh, architects and engineers uh, managed to escape uh, being enumerated. Uh, we know that because this, is, uh, th this list comes from, uh, from yet another code section where those professions were categorized. Uh, and then there's a catch-all. Uh, any other trade or business where the principal asset is the skill or reputation uh, of uh, one or more employees. So in terms of, uh, in terms of uncertainty uh, around this 20% deduction, I'd say that this is where, where an awful lot uh, of, of the action is. Uh, at least it's where an awful lot of tax advisors are, uh, are asking uh, Treasury for, uh, for guidance. Uh, you know, the quest, th this is, these are pretty broad categories. Uh, I think we can expect regulations to come out. Uh, I'd, ex I'd expect probably this year. Um, and in terms of these categories, uh, I think that I think a lot of people believe that uh, the Treasury uh, is going to is going to look to to keep this exclusion uh, as broad as they can. Uh, the 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 QBI uh, this uh, pass through deduction was scored at at 400 billion uh, over its next you know 10 years of life, uh, and depending on how broadly or narrowly you define uh, these these specified services businesses, will probably have a pretty big impact uh, on revenue. Uh, so we'll see those coming out uh, probably pretty soon. Uh, in particular, or, or is is this catch-all? Uh, there are an awful lot of categories of businesses, uh, you know, where their their principal asset is reputation or skill uh, of employees. Um, I'm going to get in a moment to a pretty notable exception. Uh, if if a taxpayer's income uh, is below uh, certain thresholds. Uh, then all of this specified service business uh, stuff gets wiped off the table. 
so you could be uh, in a in a specified services business uh, if your income is lower than one hundred and fifty seven thousand five hundred dollars a year, in, at least in twenty eighteen. Uh, then none of this stuff is going to matter. Um, another limitation, uh, in addition to the specified uh, 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 services business limitation, uh, is is the so called wage or, or wage and capital limits. Uh, so. Every pass-through entity, uh, let's call it a partnership for now, uh, is going to calculate uh, and allocate to its partners uh, two separate items. Uh, the first uh, is it's going to tally up all the W-2 wages uh, that it paid for the year. Uh, and second, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to calculate its uh, unadjusted basis uh, in so-called qualified property. Uh, and so by unadjusted basis, I've, I mean basically cost, uh, the original basis unimpacted by depreciation that's been taken over time. Uh, and so if you get a K-1 uh, from a partnership, it's going to have your so-called allocable share of these two items. Uh, and the amount of the 20% of the QBI deduction that you can take is going to be limited by the greater of either half, 50% uh, of your share of W-2 wages, uh, or 25% of your share of those wages, plus 2.5% uh, of the cost of that qualified property. So what, what does all that mean? Uh, well, it means that, that if your income is over certain thresholds, uh, it, either your business needs to be uh, in a business that is relatively capital intensive uh, or pays a significant amount of, of wages uh, in order to benefit uh, from, from this deduction. Uh, now, in terms of that qualified property, um, I've listed out kind of a summary here on the slide of, of what it is. Uh, in the interest of time, uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Uh, it's basically uh, tangible property. It's depreciable property. Uh, and there are a particular set of rules uh, about when you can count it and, and how long you can continue uh, to include that property in your, uh, in your wage and capital uh, limitation uh, calculation. So, um, really important uh, to, to all this uh, are these income thresholds. Uh, I'm going to focus on, on just the individual figures, uh, but if you're, uh, if you're married filing jointly, then, uh, then just double those. Uh, Congress has established a band. Uh, at the bottom of that band uh, is that $157,500 number, uh, and at the top of it is $217,500. Now, if you're, if you're below uh, the bottom of that band, uh, then the wage, the wage and capital limitation that I just described, uh, the specified services business uh, limitation that I just described, none of that matters. Uh, and if you're above the top of that band, uh, then all of those limitations matter. Uh, and if you're uh, unfortunate enough to be uh, somewhere in between, or I guess unfortunate for your, for your CPA, uh, then, then you're kind of in phase-out territory and, and you get to, in essence, get, get a, a portion uh, of those deductions. Um, so uh, a couple of, just a couple of takeaways uh, on this. Um, first, uh, it's, uh, n none of this is, is particularly simple. Um, there are uh, there are, are a lot of kind of case by case opportunities for figuring out ways uh, that you might be able to to optimize the deduction uh, if it's available to you. Uh, 
um, there are potentially some some interesting fact patterns where you have businesses that that may be specified services businesses or or, or components of them may be. Uh, and there's quite a bit to think about uh, in terms of structures where you you have you know hybrid business entities that kind of thing. Um, the it's changed the the landscape a little bit uh, in terms of uh, in terms of choice of entity. Uh, and now where where um, even a discussion as between uh, operating as a as a partnership, a tax partnership, or an, or an S corporation, uh, some of the considerations are different. Uh, in particular, as it relates uh, to, to to that wage limitation, uh, the guaranteed payments uh, that which are really common in a lot of partnerships or, or payments that are classified that way for tax purposes, uh, in my view, really have pretty disfavored treatment. Uh, you don't get to to count them uh, towards that wage limitation. Uh, guaranteed payments themselves uh, aren't uh, aren't QBI. Uh, so the the way we're we're characterizing how partners are compensated in a lot of businesses, uh, I think will will be impacted by this. Um, and uh, with that, I think that's all we're going to do on uh, on the pass through deduction. And I think next uh, is is Tinley, uh, who's going to tell us about the the carried interest provisions, which uh, I'll describe as. Is it a lot more pitfally uh, than the rules that, that I just went through? So, hi everyone. I'm Tenley Oldak, also a tax partner here. Um, and I, as Andrew previewed, I'm going to touch on two different provisions that um, are, are directly relevant to partnerships and entities taxed as partnerships, so LLCs taxed as partnerships. Can everyone hear me in back? Okay. Um, uh, so the next two slides are kind of a refresher for those of us who may not work with partnership interests regularly. Um, uh, the first discusses what is a profits interest. A profits interest is a tax-advantaged vehicle for delivering compensation to a services partner in a partnership in, a, in the form of an interest in the partnership's profits. So... Um, the IRS has established some safe harbor requirements, which provided your, um, your profits interest is structured to meet those requirements, um, mean that at the time of grant, the profits interest recipient is not taxed on the receipt of the profits interest, and at the time that they subsequently go to transfer that profits interest, um, provided they've held the interest for two years or more, um, and otherwise comply with the other requirements of the safe harbor, uh, the, the partner is eligible for uh, a capital gains treatment on gain on that sale or disposition. In the meantime, while the profits interest partner holds that interest, um, they are taxed on a flow-through basis on the partnership's items of income, gain, loss, deduction, credit, um, such that if the partnership recognizes uh, capital gain on the sale of the, or, or sale of assets or other transactions, that treatment can flow through to the partner, and the partner will be taxed at, at capital gains rates. Prior to the TCJA, uh, it's a mouthful. Uh, the uh, the holding period in order for cap, uh, long-term capital gains rates to flow through. To a, to a partner was a one-year holding period. So the partnership had to hold its assets for at least a year um, before uh, it could allocate long-term capital gains to 
any, any partner, including a profits interest partner. Um, carried interest, we've all heard the term um, uh, briefly. Um, it's essentially a profits interest or simi similar vehicle in the investment fund context. Um, also referred to as a carry. Um, a carried interest has been um, very attractive in the investment fund context, uh, hedge funds, PE funds, real estate funds, um, other investment funds, because the kind of assets that those funds hold generate um, typically uh, 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 preferential rates um, you know, when income is, is derived from them. So, uh, so fund managers, GPs of investment funds typically receive carried interest as compensation. They may also receive a management fee. Um, so you may have heard of the 2 and 20, which is 2% management fee and a profits interest, uh, essentially, uh, 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 which is described as a carried interest. So that's the, the background. Um, the TCJA um, <laughs> says that for tax years beginning after December 31st, 2017, there is now a three-year holding period in order for gains derived with respect to an applicable partnership interest to qualify for long-term capital gains rates. Um, this with respect to language is unclear at best, um, and so there's been a question as to whether that applies at the partner level when the partner transfers its interest in the partnership, transfers its carried interest. At the partnership level, so for flow-through income, if the partnership needs to hold its assets for three years or more, um, or if it applies at both levels, and we read this to apply at actually both levels. So. Um, in order for a partner to receive long-term capital gains treatment on flow-through income from the partnership, the partnership needs to have held assets for three years. How does that work? So if a GP of a fund is allocated uh, $20 million of purportedly long-term capital gain, but the partnership has only held um, assets uh, or, or only had a holding period of more than three years for assets that generated $15 million of that gain, that remaining $5 million will be taxed at short-term capital gains rates, which is about 17% higher than the long-term rates. Um, so we go down the rabbit hole of a lot of, um, there are a lot of definitions within this provision. The kind of key, key definitions are the applicable partnership interest. What are the interests to which this applies? Um, and the language is up there. It's, um, it's any partnership interest in a partnership which directly or indirectly is transferred to or held by the taxpayer in connection with the performance of substantial services by the taxpayer or any other related person in any applicable trade or business. The previous sentence shall not apply to an interest held by a person who is employed by another entity that is conducting a trader business other than an ap applicable trader business and only provide services to such other entity. So this somewhat Byzantine language um, uh, essentially is kind of best digested by determining first what's excluded and then, and then what it applies to. First, we read that second sentence to say, Basically, if you have um, a portfolio company of a fund and an executive of that portfolio company, provided that portfolio company isn't engaged in kind of traditional investment 
uh, business, that uh, that prof- uh, profits interest issued to that executive should not fall within the uh, the applicable trader business. I'm sorry, the applicable partnership interest. Secondly, Congress carved out um, kind of two main exemptions here as well. The first is for carried interest issued to a corporation, and the second is for capital interest a capital interest issued. Um, as compensation for services or in exchange for capital investment. And that capital investment provision is fairly narrow, um, and, and so it's con- we're viewing that as kind of a fairly narrow exception here. A side note on the interest held by a corporation, um, the number of LLC filings in Delaware in the month of December jumped by 19%. And that has been attributed to hedge fund managers and other investment fund managers forming single-member LLCs uh, for which they would elect S-corporation status in order to hold um, these carried interests and get around the the three-year rule. The IRS has preliminarily announced that it's going to prohibit um, funds from doing this in order to get around the three-year rule. It won't include... S corporations within the definition of corporations, but we don't believe that the IRS has the authority to limit the statutory language in that way. So it will be interesting to see how that how that plays out. Um, so again, uh, the definition within the definition, the applicable trader business to which um, these uh, 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 that trigger the application of the three year hold is the. Uh, any activity conducted on a regular, continuous, and substantial basis that, regardless of whether the activity is conducted in one or more entities, consists in whole or part of raising or returning capital and either investing in or disposing of specified assets or identifying specified assets for such investing or disposition. Um, And so, essentially, investment funds are going to be caught up in this. Specified assets are securities, real estate held for rental or investment, um, and there's a look-through rule for partnerships as well. So the takeaways on the the carried interest provision, it's very broadly drafted and is going to sweep in not only um, GPs and fund managers, but other service partners who receive a profits interest in a partnership. Um, It's... it's, um, uh, also clear that Congress has not shut down the use of carried interests. So, for example, private equity funds, many of them hold their assets for three years or more anyway. So it's unclear whether this will have a significant impact on those kinds of groups of funds. Um, Mike, how am I doing on time? You're doing great. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, so the, the other provision that, um, that we wanted to cover... Uh, relating to partnerships is the new withholding tax. And you'll see it says at the top there that it's suspended. Um, The IRS has suspended this provision for publicly traded partnerships and is currently working on a notice to suspend its application to um, non-publicly traded partnerships. That said, once we receive guidance on how to comply with this provision, it will be um, kind of brought back to life. So we 
thought it was worth it to preview it because it will have a significant Im impact on M&A transactions involving partnerships that have foreign partners. So it's, it's going to be um, an important provision to be aware of going forward. So the background here, um, there's a new section that applies to foreign partners in partnerships, um, and it provides that um, it, it actually codifies an old IRS ruling and provides that uh, gain or loss recognized by a foreign person on the sale of a partnership interest will be treated as effectively connected with a U.S. trader business, meaning that gain or loss is subject to U.S. federal income tax, to the extent the gain or loss from the sale or exchange of the underlying assets held by the partnership would be treated as effectively connected income if allocated to that partner. That means <laughs> that if the, essentially if the partnership is engaged in a U.S. trader business, a foreign partner who disposes of a partnership interest in that partnership will be subject to U.S. federal in income tax on that disposition. Um, this provision is also coordinated with FERPTA, for those of you familiar with that. <clears throat> so in order to enforce that rule, there's a new withholding tax which says um, that uh, uh, the transferee, the buyer of a partnership interest, has to withhold 10% of the amount realized by the seller on that transfer unless the buyer receives a non-foreign affidavit, essentially. Um, and, and for those of you, again, familiar with FERPTA, those, those old certificates serve that purpose, we believe. Important to know here that if the buyer fails to withhold, then the partnership in which they just received an interest becomes obligated to withhold on any distributions to that partner um, to, to the extent of the tax plus interest. So we anticipate um, once this provision is unsuspended um, that there will be guidance on sort of how to address all these certification requirements, um, agents, intermediaries, um, reporting, a whole lot of areas in which we don't currently have guidance, but kind of how to, how to, how taxpayers can comply with this provision. Um, and with that, I'm going to turn it over to Eric. So I'm Eric Jensen. I'm also a tax partner here. Uh, so I'm going to talk primarily about uh, the new uh, business interest expense limitation under 163J. Uh, but before diving into that, it's worth mentioning a couple other uh, changes to deductions and limitations that may have an effect on M&A. Uh, the, the first of which is Section 179, which generally allows you to uh, uh, expense up to a certain threshold uh, certain tangible personal property. Under the new rules, we increased the amount of this property that you can expense, but more importantly for just general changes is that it's now allowed for certain improvements to real property, uh, improvements to interior of non-residential real property, uh, certain HVAC systems and things like that. So there, there's an expansion in what can be immediately expensed under 179, and that's that's a substantial change from what we've seen in the past. Uh, another thing to note is under 168K, which is probably going to be uh, a big deal in the M&A uh, scenario, is that you can now uh, get bonus depreciation up to 100% of assets that you otherwise could in the past 
but it used to be limited to only new property, property that was placed into service when you bought it. It now applies to used property. So what this means is for the next five years and then on a reduced schedule after that for the next three or four years, your asset acquisitions are going to be very important because you can uh, depreciate 100% of those assets in year one. Uh, so that is a huge economic benefit uh, for, for, for folks in the M&A uh, world uh, doing asset acquisitions. That, that does not apply to intangible, though. Correct. Right. Correct. Uh, so, so there's an importance, uh, a new uh, improved importance on how you allocate that purchase price among uh, tangible assets and intangible assets. Tangible and intangible. Uh, so 163J, generally under the old rules, and as, as we've seen for uh, as, as far as I've been alive, you can deduct... Uh, interest expense incurred in your trade or business, uh, except for certain uh, earnings strippings provisions under the old 163J. The new 163J sort of is a substantial deviation from that, where it limits the amount of interest that you can actually deduct. And so what the rule says is basically that you're only allowed to take a deduction for interest incurred in connection with your trade or business up to the amount of interest that you've earned in that trader business plus 30% of your adjusted taxable income. Adjusted taxable income is more or less EBITDA, um, but note after 2023 or beginning 2023, that changes to just EBIT. So it, it's no longer, it's going to be a smaller amount that that 30% applies to. So your ability to deduct interest is going to get uh, comparatively smaller post-2022 because uh, your adjusted taxable income is now going to be reduced uh, by your depreciation, amortization, depletion, etc. So a question is, if your interest expense is in excess of this limitation, what happens? Uh, simply, you can carry it forward for eternity until, until you use it. Uh, the converse is not true. In the event that you have excess limitation over your actual interest expense, you can't use that elsewhere, or you can't use that the next year. You can't increase your limitation. Uh, as you'll see in the partnership context, you may be able to use it elsewhere, though. Uh, this applies to all debt going forward, uh, even debt that was incurred prior to 2018. Uh, two main exclusions to this is if you're a business with average gross receipts under $25 million for the past three years, this does not apply. So this is going to take a lot of businesses outside of this rule. Uh, the other thing is that there's a, not a broad exception uh, to the whole rule, but it says an electing real property trader business is not a trader business, uh, which means that you can sort of bifurcate uh, the extent of your interest that comes from your real property trader business and that that doesn't come from your real property trader business. So what is an electing real property trader business? Uh, it's someone who's engaged in uh, any real property development, construction, acquisition, conversion. Y you can read the rest. It's, it's a super broad definition. One thing to note is that this definition comes from Section 469, the Passive Activity passive activity rules, and so it really hasn't been 
litigated or further refined as to what exactly is a real property trade or business. So one thing that may come from this is that we're going to see a lot of taxpayers trying to claim or make an election with respect to a portion of their business and claim that it's that they're in the real property trader business in order to not be subject to uh, this limitation. Uh, if they do that, we don't know how we're going to allocate this interest expense among their uh, real property trader business and their non, or how that's going to work. Uh, but I, I expect it's probably going to be somewhat complicated and very rules-based. Uh, once you make this election, it's irrevocable. Um, and if you do make it, you are going to be subject to the alternative depreciation system. You can't depreciate uh, your real property, uh, real property trader business assets uh, under MACRS, the Accelerated Cost Recovery Depreciation System. So if you do make that election, there is sort of a downside to it. So uh, there will have to be some weighing uh, based on what's more important, uh, this, this interest limitation or accelerated depreciation. One quirk uh, for this rule that gets, can get pretty complicated, and, and, and we're kind of excited to see how some of this gets sorted out, is that in the partnership context, this uh, limitation is going to apply at the partnership level. To the, however, to the extent that your limitation is less than your actual business interest, so if you have excess business interest, that is then going to pass through to the partners, each individually. Um, they cannot then use that excess or the excess uh, to offset in the event they have excess interest from uh, sources outside of the partnership. Um, the converse isn't true. So to the, extent it, to the extent that you actually have a limitation greater than your interest expense, you can then use that so if you're a C corporation, you can use that to the extent you have additional interest limit, you exceeded your interest limitation elsewhere. So it's, it's, it's complicated for me to say, but it, 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 it doesn't work both ways. So if you have interest in excess of your limitation, what happens if you can't use it that year? And you can't use it elsewhere. It carries forward with you. And you can only use it to the extent you have um, more limitation than you have interest in subsequent years. And once you set that off, uh, then you're good to go. Uh, one other quirk about this is any interest that you're not allowed to take, you're going to automatically reduce your basis, even though you weren't permitted to take it on your return for that year. Um, but to the extent you get rid or sell uh, your interest, you'll be able to add that back to the basis to the extent you didn't use it. Um, as you can imagine, once you get into tiered partnership situations, uh, th this is going to be uh, a pretty complicated rule because there's going to be elections going on at different tiers. Uh, you're you're going to have the interest coming from several different partnerships uh, and many different sources. So. Uh, It'll be interesting to see how all of this gets sort, s sorted out, but uh, for, for, the, for the time being, it's probably not worth going any further into this and just kind of leaving it as, uh, as stated. 
So with that, Greg? So, and the question is with this, what does this mean to the real world instead of just tax lawyers? And one of the questions that's always asked is, shouldn't I just convert to a C corporation? C corporation rates are 21%, pass-through rates are 37 That's easy. Let's just all convert to C corporations. Um, we as tax lawyers abhor non-pass-through entities. You're supposed to be a pass-through. Everybody says you're supposed to be a pass-through. Everybody's afraid to tell you not to be a pass-through because they might be wrong. Uh, and there haven't been that many companies that have actually converted because, one, capital gains rates are still 20% plus 3.8 plus the state. And if you have a lot of capital gain-producing assets, the difference isn't 37. It's 23.8, let's say. Uh, and if you're actually going to use that money and pass it through, distribute it through, if you're C-Corp, you're going to be subject to a dividend tax. So if you're actually passing it through to your members or then shareholders, you probably don't want to convert. And it's really hard to get assets out of a C-Corp, uh, much harder than partnerships. And as uh, Eric mentioned, you're probably going to see a move toward asset sales because of the ability of bonus depreciation and all these other things. They're going to become more valuable while sale of stock becomes less valuable because the tax attributes within the corporation are less. So we haven't seen a lot of companies move to conversions. Uh, another reason why you might want to is state and local taxes. You know, if, if, if your state income tax of your operation passes through, now you don't get it deducted as an individual. If it was captured at the C-Corp as part of the business, you would. So it, de it depends. Uh, but there hasn't been that many uh, that have converted. I have on here the bottom, uh, I also say it's hard to reverse. It's really hard to get assets out of a C-Corp without paying tax. That's why we love partnerships, because you can always change your mind. Um, Aries Capital Management has converted to a C-Corp. Uh, there's public documents out about it. Uh, a lot of people are musing whether Blackstone or Apollo is to follow. Uh, most say probably not. Um, Aries is, again, they have some public documents that they've explained why. And in large part because they have a very high proportion of their income is fee-based ordinary income. Um, so it worked for them. Other large private equity firms are considering it, but uh, as far as we know, none have pulled the trigger yet. Um, I, the, the other thing is, politically, who knows how long the rate's going to stay at 21%. Uh, as soon as the House, Senate, and White House flip, if they all flip in the same way, the rate will move. I don't know much about politics, but I think I know that. Um, and then the question, so what about some M&A uh, considerations that you might be seeing based upon this? Again, the value of the tax attributes are in serious decline. Right? You only get 21% corporate rate. The NOLs are limited. Uh, before, you might have done a transaction where the transaction expenses generated a whole bunch of NOLs, and there was a discussion of who gets the refund because we're going to carry those back. You can't carry them back anymore. And you can only apply them at an 80% rate going forward, and they are only offsetting income that's taxed at 21%. So there's a very different value proposition in generating NOLs in a transaction. The interest deduction limit... Again, obviously, you may see less leverage. Um, I think a lot of companies looked, and it, it, it may not be as uh, prevalent 
while the limitation is this EBITDA, but when it switches to EBIT, uh, you may have a different a different concern. And if you're the real estate companies, I think a lot of them are waiting until that period of time, taking the deduction now, and then when that reduces, they may make they may make the election uh, at that time. You may see more preferred equity structures. You may see more leasing arrangements, things that are substitute, that are debt-like but not debt, which will put pressure on us to decide what are they for tax purposes. Are they debt or are they equity? Um, Leverage blockers is important. I say it may be limited, but this is somewhat of a technical rule. I say here only ATI, and that's adjusted taxable income that was referred to in the the deduction, uh, is from a share of the partnership excess adjusted taxable income. You have to be very careful with with leverage blockers. Their ability to offset interest expense and what's coming up uh, can be very limited um, because a corporation does not have investment interest income. They only have business expense. So it is, uh, if you have leverage blockers, be careful, make sure that's what you want. Repatriation. Uh, we didn't discuss really any of the foreign provisions. They were probably really two-thirds of the act, but they were the foreign provisions. But uh, here I mentioned the repatriation. There was a mandatory repatriation, deemed repatriation for old earnings. If you're doing an acquisition from a company that had CFCs, there might be a tax liability out there. The law gave them eight years to repay it. Um, or you might buy a company three years from now that four years ago had uh, a CFC that generated tax liability. That tax does, is, is paid over eight years. So in your documents, you have to be very careful about who is paying that tax. It's not as simple as the old straddle period, I'll take the old, you take the new. This tax is due in future years, but it's from a deemed repatriation at the end of 2017. So if there's what you'll start seeing are more reps and warranties, more tax diligence, and probably contract provisions to figure out uh, who is bearing the risk of those taxes. Is it just dealt with in a purchase price adjustment? Is it dealt with in indemnities, uh, holdbacks? But there's this eight-year period to pay this tax if, if it's uh, applicable. I'll, I'll tell you what I've seen Okay, is purchase price adjustment. <laughs> in every, every sell-side deal I've been involved in, I've, I've seen buyers saying, we're going to treat it just like indebtedness in your purchase agreement. You go out and give me a number, uh, and we're going to whack it off your, your purchase yeah. price day one. But then you have to make sure that that's the right number. And there might be an indemnity sure. if that number was understated. Yeah. 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 Okay. On uh, excess business loss limitation, we didn't really discuss this. There is a, now a provision that limits your ability to take loss from one business and apply it against another. You know, it used to be, am I active, am I passive? I can take all my active income and offset it against active losses. That's not the case anymore. Uh, it's siloed. So some people are considering restructuring to try to get one big trader business, where they used to have some loss trader business here and some income trader business here, and they'll group them together, maybe, to get one. Now, as this is written, this particular provision, some people have described as a swing and a miss by Congress. Because what happens with this limitation is it becomes an NOL. And the limitation doesn't apply to NOLs. So do you end up missing out for one year 
getting an NOL for the next year that's subject to the 80%. As it's written, that's what it does. Will Treasury try to apply the same sort of siloing of losses to those NOLs? Um, Hard-pressed to see how they will. They might try, and it might be litigated. Um, and then disallowance. Whoops, I missed that one. Yeah, disallowance of miscellaneous itemized deductions. Uh, in the past, funds would really take care to try to not create miscellaneous itemized deductions, uh, investment expense, because they were subject to a two percent gross income limitation. Now they're completely denied. You don't get it. So it's very important that uh, investors' share of expenses uh, are not investment expenses. Or if they are, they're gonna, their return's going to be affected. Um, and you have to be careful of swaps if you have swaps because probably only the, the income coming in from the swap counts in the payment going out is probably an investment expense. And you may have some unhappy people getting K-1s with, uh, without being able to deduct things they think they should be able to deduct. Uh, Tax-exempt investors, uh, if they're in your funds, one, there's if they're higher ed and they have more than 500 students, they have this 1.4% tax now. So that's just the reality, whether that creates uh, a negotiating point for them or not, I don't know. The other is uh, unrelated business taxable income. They used to be able to, again, offset losses from one trade or business from gains from another. Now you have to look at them separately. So uh, funds that are investors that are, are sensitive to UBTI and used to take comfort in offsetting losses and gains uh, may be more sensitive to those issues. Uh, finally, foreign investors. Um, as Tenley was pointing out, there are some withholding requirements. They have been suspended for publicly traded partnerships. The IRS, I think Friday, said they're going to suspend them for private partnerships till they figure out how to deal with these things. But um, the point is, when there are foreign investors and there's transfers of interest, there's information the partnership is going to need to have. And probably anything that was drafted last year doesn't allow them, doesn't force the foreigner, the foreign partner to get it to them. So perhaps there should be some indemnifications. Perhaps there should be some uh, transfer restrictions, uh, some ability to get the appropriate information so that the partnership can determine whether it has an obligation to withhold distributions that might be going to the uh, new partner who purchased the interest. Um, so I think those are the kind of the the hot points right now for M&A deals, and we'd open up for any questions or comments. So I may not know a lot about politics, but what's the likelihood surveying the panel just for fun? Because this has been all highly technical tax fun, but on the political side, the phase-outs in 2025, you know, snap, snap poll of the panel, uh, what's likely to happen to those? Phase out or get re-upped by a future Congress? Well, you have to tell me who is the president <laughs> and who controls the House and who controls the Senate. And I'll point yeah. out to you, when Barack Obama was president, he made permanent 95% of the Bush tax cuts. It's always hard to make it go away. That being said, the corporate rate at 21% is really low. 
Now we'll have this we'll have this experiment, right? We'll have this grand experiment, and if the economy's going gangbusters, who's gonna who's gonna rock the boat? So I'd say I have no idea, but you have to give me more information, which is really what tax lawyers always say. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> Other questions? Since that one was so artfully answered. <laughs> John. Okay, so for benefit of the podcast, the question is how does the rate today compare to uh, comparative developed country rates? Uh, it is lower. It's lower than the average. Um, I think that yeah, if you look at the OECD countries, uh, they're probably 21, 23 on average, 23, 24. I think people are comfortable with the 24, 25 rate, thinking that would put us on par. Um, so we're a bit lower. Now, it's kind of apples and oranges because there's other, you know, we don't have a VAT. Uh, we probably have, don't have other taxes, but uh, their taxes might provide more services. So I think the view is that it makes us competitive on a tax rate with other countries. For those that don't, some of the foreign provisions that were added are to address those, the transferring the IP to low-taxing jurisdictions. Um, there are some... There are some provisions in here that really create more, uh, even though you hear all about a territorial system, there's some worldwide tax sprinkles throughout here to prevent shopping for really low taxing jurisdictions. But it should prevent tax rate form shopping to a large degree. Well, uh, it's, it, it's in a different format. So the question is about uh, the transfers of, let's say, IP offshore, and how is that impacted in the, the repatriation. And the territorial system, if you're a corporate taxpayer, if you're a corporate shareholder, in other words, you cannot be a partnership or an individual and own a CFC and get the benefit of the territorial system. You have to be a corporate shareholder of a CFC. If you get cash coming back, or dividends, it's really dividends, dividends can be cash or property coming back to the U.S., then you get a 100% dividends received deduction, so you only pay tax in your the country where that was earned. Now, that's different than shifting IP offshore and then entering into a contract with your U.S. company to license that IP from the offshore provider. Now you have payments going offshore uh, from the U.S parent, let's say, to the offshore subsidiary, and they've put some guardrails around that if that IP is sitting in a low-tax jurisdiction. You get a rate of return on it and a certain tax rate, and then there will be some minimum taxes imposed, imposed on it. Uh, uh, interestingly, now they came up with clever acronyms. One is called GUILTY. Uh, you know, global, intangible, low-tax uh, uh, income. <laughs> Um, and if you're guilty, you have to pay some taxes. Big round of applause for our panel. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.